Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Uh, I'm going to get things going really fast here because U.S. senators are very busy people, and we have one uh, on the line right now. I'll tell you a little bit later what the other topics on the show are, but uh, let's jump right in right now with U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's joining us uh, on what, as far as anybody knows, is the eve, or at least the 24 hours before uh, the impeachment trial in the Senate begins. So, uh, Senator Blumenthal, welcome back to our show to be with you again, Colin. I'm on the New Jersey Turnpike. Oh, lucky down to DC. Lucky you. Um, so, um, I mean, what we're hearing, kind of leaking out now, although I don't think an official announcement has been made, is but that it will begin tomorrow, probably with a debate and vote on the constitutionality question. Does that sound right to you? That sounds right, Colin. Uh, the Republicans will make another attempt to in effect, dismiss the charges against Donald Trump on the ground that he cannot be tried for impeachment after he has left office. Uh, Within the last 24 hours, one of the paramount conservative lawyers, Chuck Cooper, has written an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal saying that theory is just flat wrong. And we know it's wrong from the Constitution itself. It provides a potential penalty that He cannot run for office again. That penalty can be applied, by the way, only after he's impeached, in other words, thrown out of office. So the Constitution clearly contemplates that a trial can take place after an official leaves office. In fact, they have left office, judges and cabinet officer in one instance, and still been tried. Right. Yeah. So there's precedent, there's constitutional language, and I believe that motion will fail tomorrow if it's debated then. Right. So uh, we should say that Charles Cooper, uh, who wrote the article, was, among other things, uh, the lawyer representing former National Security Advisor John Bolton during Trump's first impeachment trial. He's no stranger to this. And as you suggested, he is uh, very much a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. uh, And yet he feels uh, that the unconstitutionality question just doesn't fly. You guys probably have the numbers anyway. So... um, Let's go from there. Now, there, there's an internal debate going on about whether or not you call witnesses, how, how big a trial this has is, is going to turn out to be. I think you've been quoted as saying that, that maybe you're disinclined to call witnesses. Well, here's what I think, Colin. As a former trial lawyer, in fact, a prosecutor, U.S. attorney, and then attorney general for 20 years, uh, you rely on your best evidence. The best evidence, the most compelling and powerful evidence here is Donald Trump's own words out of his own mouth at the ellipse when he fueled and inflamed that crowd purposely and intentionally after inviting them, in fact, imploring them to come to Washington. And then afterward, what he said in his tweets and his video and his public statements, he called them very special people. He practically reveled in what they did. He sat in his Oval Office, even as his vice president was threatened with physical harm assassination, and he lifted not a finger. So I think there's evidence in the public record, and they're going to rely on it, a lot of the videos and statements and so forth. And then witnesses may strengthen or reinforce pieces of it. Uh, there, For a while, there was uh, the idea they'd call Donald Trump as a witness. He declined to appear voluntarily. Looks like they're not going to subpoena him. So I think the core of the case will still be 
the statements and video. And I think that will serve them well if they decide, and it's their case to try. They want witnesses. I'll support them. The um, I mean, the witnesses can, in some in some ways, inject a certain amount of, for want of better terms, kind of color and emotion into things that we're already aware of. So, if you call Capitol police officers who are essentially fighting for their lives and also fighting to preserve the lives of members of Congress, or if you call Georgia election officials uh, about what it's like to have the president uh, essentially ask you to falsify election re- returns or find uh, thousands of votes that do not exactly exist or do not at all exist, that you you add some kind of visceral impact to the argument you're otherwise making just in the form of oral argument. So, I mean, why not do that? Well, that's a good point, Colin. And every trial lawyer has to balance the potential additional persuasive power of a witness with the danger of overtrying the case and being repetitious, which was one of the problems in the first impeachment trial that we sat on. But you're absolutely right that this riot an act of domestic terrorism inspired, incited, instigated by Donald Trump was part of a 77-day strategy that included that call or series of calls to Georgia officials asking them to, quote-unquote, find votes. That's pretty extraordinary. His calls to other officials around the country, his conversations with other people that may have been part of that plot and conspiracy. So, as I say, if the House managers think it adds to their case, I will go along with their judgment because they're closest to the evidence at this point that they think will be persuasive. But stand back for a moment and realize that, unfortunately and tragically, my Republican colleagues are far from impartial jurors. They've already indicated, many of them publicly, they're not going to vote to convict. And so the real court here is the court of public opinion. And there, the question of what will be really compelling and persuasive, I think, requires consideration. I mean, in some ways, the ideal witness might be a a person that whose existence, at least I'm unaware of, but I'm sure some law enforcement people know, too, because, uh, you know, uh, that that would be people who heard Donald Trump's words uh, there at the ellipse and and felt further emboldened to go do what they wound up doing. In other words, the the argument that's going to be made, we already know there's a 78 page brief submitted to the Senate today by the Trump defense team. And, and they're basically saying that, you know, you're making a connection that doesn't really exist. Uh, they say this was only ever a selfish attempt by Democratic leadership in the House to prey upon the feelings of horror and confusion that fell upon all Americans across the entire political spectrum upon seeing the destruction at the Capitol on January 6th by a few hundred people. Well, I mean, we know it's not like, you know, you guys picked his name out of a hat. He's the last person who talked to them before they went and did that kind of stuff. But mightn't it be powerful to if you could find witnesses who said, yeah, yeah, we heard what he said and we, we took that as, you know, as his blessing? Very possibly. You're right. In fact, they have videos of people who say, you know, we did what we did because we were listening to Donald Trump. And obviously the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and the Boogaloo, 
these guys are not going to be cooperative witnesses. They may say, in fact, they have, some of them actually said privately or publicly that they were inspired by Donald Trump. But you may not want to put them on a quote-unquote witness stand in front of the United States Senate and the whole country without knowing in advance what exactly they're going to say because as every trial lawyer knows, you need to be pretty sure what that witness is going to say before you present them in a low-stakes case, and there couldn't be a higher-stakes case than this one. So I think possibly his testimony from a capital policeman who lied seriously injured or a bystander who overheard conversations such as you just described about somebody saying we're doing this for Donald Trump, they may choose to put on testimony like that kind of witness. But I think the overall impression, what will be persuasive to people, not a single or even two or three rioters, but the overall impression. And here's something else to keep in mind, Colin. Along with Donald Trump, what's on trial here is domestic terrorism the most persistent and legal national security threat internally right now. A lethal threat, a persistent threat that the FBI says is the biggest threat to our national security. And we need to focus on the longer term dangers here that are so insidious and pernicious. And so when people ask me, well, what if he's acquitted? What have you accomplished? Well, first of all, Donald Trump has to be made accountable. Second, in any public corruption case, as you know, there's a powerful impact of testimony and evidence about the corruption. It can shake up a whole government or a movement. And we've seen it, I've seen it in public corruption trials. You're dealing here with public corruption. And third, the public needs to understand and needs to know the danger of domestic terrorism. So the public airing of facts, the full tableau has a powerful impact. Yeah, I think there's a you know whole argument for creating a record, and it does make me think of um, a period in history that you and I both lived through, although we had different jobs, and and that was the near impeachment of John Rowland here in Connecticut. So um, we had a House Select Committee, and they took testimony. Now the uh, federal government uh, wound up accepting a, a plea from Rowland. Rowland also resigned before the House Select Committee had completely finished its work. But you know one of the things that I noticed over the years is that people kind of simplify that story in their minds, particularly people who are uh, inclined to sympathize with Rowan. They go, oh, well, you know, he just took some kitchen cabinets and what's the big deal? Uh, and, and I always produce for them, you know, if I can, first of all, the stipulation he signed with the federal government where he admitted to a much broader set of malfeasances that awarded, involved the awarding of millions of dollars of contracts uh, as part of a criminal conspiracy. And then some of that testimony that was collected by the House that involved all kinds of other stuff. And I guess to me, that's one of the arguments for making the Senate trial as detailed as it can be, because otherwise, two years from now, you have people going, well, he didn't do anything. He just did this. And it wasn't that big a deal. So some chairs got broken up at the U.S. Capitol. You know, history has a way of being converted into a very fuzzier kind of oral record. And, and uh, you know, for me, this is part of the purpose. You create a record you can at least produce when people are saying something that's not true. 
absolutely right, and it should be as detailed as necessary to make a public record. I agree. And remember, there's a reason why we have public trials in this country. First of all, it's to protect the innocent. But second, it's also to allow the public to know what is going on in our justice system. And it was one of the foundational principles of our democracy that there be open and public trials where public officials are held accountable. It's especially important and never more so than in an impeachment trial where a public official is brought to account for law-breaking that constitutes an impeachable offense. Here, clearly, there's law-breaking that constitutes an impeachable defense. And the question really is, as you put it, was his diatribe, his fueling of fantasies and falsehood, his 77-day rage against the electoral outcome with lies and the big lie that the election was stolen, did that incite people? Did it play a part in their storming the Capitol, seeking to stop the vote counting and do harm to public officials and potentially even assassinate them? I think the evidence is going to be pretty compelling, and my Republican colleagues are going to be haunted by it if they vote to acquit. They'll be haunted by constituents and more so even by history. Do you have a sense from what's coming out uh, of the two Senate leaders uh, how long this trial is apt to run? I'm reading uh, that it will probably be a fairly compressed thing, maybe bleeding into the following week, but not much beyond that. Uh, I'm hearing that it will be about a week. At the same time, I don't see anybody telling the House managers with a trial team here, you have to cut it off mid-sentence if they're saying they need another day or two. We've said we'd like it to be a matter of days. I think it will be a matter of days, not weeks. And keep in mind, and I will say this very purposely, I just left the vaccine clinic at uh, Charter Oak uh, Federal Health Clinic in Hartford. Uh, Over the weekend, I was at Dunkin' Donuts Stadium for the vaccine clinic there. I was at Wheeler Clinic on Friday. This pandemic is pressing. It's real. It's lethal to our country. We need to conquer it. Congress needs to act, and we need to act boldly and promptly because there are literally lives at stake with thousands of people dying every day and people are hurting. They need the nutrition assistance, rental aid, state and local governments need support. So do the vaccine delivery systems. And as I go around and I see the shortages of vaccines, as well as the support that the distribution sites need, I go back to Washington and literally I'm driving there right now intent on moving forward with staff work and my work to finalize this blueprint of the American Rescue Plan, even as we move forward on the impeachment proceedings. And we can do both. We will do both this week, finalize the numbers and the language in the American Rescue Plan bill so that we can get it done, hopefully by the end of February, and uh, certainly get those stimulus payments out late February, early March. 
All right. Well, uh, I think you're coming up towards the Thomas Edison rest stop, and you may want to pull over there. So, Richard Blumenthal, I am going to let you go. But, <laughs> Senator, uh, thank you very thank much. You, uh, thanks very, very much for taking the time. Thank you. Take care, everyone. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to a very busy man. <laughs> <laughs> David Fulkenflick, when you cover the news media for NPR or for anybody, you're busy right now. I mean, there's like, you know, towers falling over, and some of them say Fox on the side. All right. Uh, so this is Colin McEnroe. We're going to get to our next guest in just a second here. Uh, I will say that I was kind of hoping to talk to Richard Blumenthal also about the fact that th- one of the real things that I think, you know, needs to be explored in the course of this impeachment trial is do you treat Donald Trump as a former president the way Barack Obama, the way George W. Bush, the way Bill Clinton, the way Jimmy Carter are former presidents? I really question whether he should have a budget and stuff like that for for his office, particularly if he is convicted, which I guess is probably not going to happen. But, you know, there's also this question, which we were thinking about exploring with Blumenthal. I could just sort of tell we needed to segue here, but... um, of whether he should be receiving intelligence briefings, which, as you may know, uh, President Biden has suggested that it's not a good idea and that a number of other people have chimed in to say he, because of all these strange entanglements he has, business entanglements that kind of uh, spill into questions of national security, spill spill into questions of what his motivations might be vis-a-vis any foreign government. Um, because of all that, you know, you really don't want to be saying stuff to him. You don't want to be putting yourself in the position or putting him in the position of knowing stuff that the average person doesn't know. So anyway, that is still to come. Uh, we are going to uh, provide you with coverage of the impeachment whenever it happens, which I think is starting tomorrow. Uh, and so now we're going to talk uh, about a media with David Fulkenflick, a very, very busy person these days. I mean, he's always a busy person, but he's NPR's media correspondent and the author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. Uh, and we're living in a very strange time uh, right now vis-a-vis uh, conservative media, not just Fox News, but we can start there. So, uh, so David, Smartmatic, which really sounds like this terrific uh, kitchen appliance I wish I had. I wish I had a Smartmatic to make the chicken cacciatore. It's so good uh, at that. But it's actually a voting machine company, one of two. They filed these massive uh, defamation suits uh, against Fox News. Uh, so what's, in a nutshell, what's going on here? And we might be having a Zoom issue of some kind. Uh, all right, let's see. Oh, he can't hear me. All right, uh, so I have to figure out why that would be. Uh, okay, I'm gonna wait for somebody to give so me I can something. Make sure that I can. There. Can you hear me now? Do you have your uh, speaker on, David? <laughs> all right. So. Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out how we. Well, I'll begin by summarizing this, and maybe uh, Bitsy Kaplan, you can start messaging, texting him, see if you can turn his speaker on or something like that, so that he can begin to hear me. Because we can't really think of a reason on this end why he, he wouldn't be able to hear me. So let me explain. I'll explain. <laughs> What's happening? I personally have to know a lot about this anyway. So let me just say this uh, for starters. 
people in the media, people in journalism, we get we either get sued all the time or we get threatened with lawsuits all the time. I mean, not all the time, but I mean, if you have a long career doing stuff like this, you are going to be uh, on the receiving end of lawsuits and lawsuit uh, threats and stuff like that. This is somehow different. Um, this is um, different in the sense that it really seems to be a situation where Smartmatic uh, and Dominion, the other uh, companies suing, uh, they're shooting at the feet uh, of the media, but the conservative media in particular, and the conservative media are dancing. Uh, and they, they are nervous in a way that you typically don't see big media companies react to lawsuits. So I think we have uh, uh, we have made contact with David Fulgenflick, and he can begin to add his expertise to this. But hi, David. Hey there, Colin. Great to hear your voice. Enjoying the show so far. Sorry, I didn't, uh, you couldn't quite connect earlier. No problem. So, um, so you, you probably heard what I just said. I mean, look, we've both been in the business a long time. You know, people threaten to sue you all the time. Sometimes they file those suits. I don't know. You just don't like run around firing people and running around and running, airing strange disclaimers. What's different about this situation? Well, yeah, in full disclosure, I was sued for 60 million bucks by a guy who used to be an unpaid Fox commentator. Uh, and uh, that suit, shall we say, was settled with not a retraction at all or not a not a not a step back of a single pace. Uh, in this case, you know, let's be fair. Fox News says officially, uh, look, we promised that uh, we were going to be making changes back in October. And uh, this is among them. On the other hand, when something happens 24, 25, 26 hours after a 2.7 billion with a B billion dollar lawsuit has been dropped. Uh, yeah, you begin to think that's uh, going to be a huge factor in that. Nobody outside of Fox I've talked to, nobody inside of Fox I've talked to other than those officials suggest that there's anything other than that this is a way in which Fox is trying to distance itself from the fever uh, uh, swamp, shall we say, of untrue conspiracy theories and baseless allegations against this company, SmartTech, uh, that they've been ladling out, uh, especially on their opinion shows, but that, you know, popped up throughout their lineup one way or another. Lou Dobbs and his co-defendants, uh, uh, Janine Perro, Maria Bartiromo, not only allowed people to say stuff like that on its air, they amplified it, affirmed it, and gave it credibility through the both the amount of time they lavished on it and the, the tenor of their uh, lines of inquiry. Right. So, uh, Kat, let's drop down to quote uh, to uh, clip number B2. And, and so this is not only have they let go of Lou Dobbs, uh, as you say, in a, in a way whose sequence makes it almost inescapable that that's this is why they're doing it. They're they're saying this was in the works for a long time. Uh, that's what people say. Uh, it's clearly not the case. But they started running this odd little piece that I think was actually maybe recorded in December uh, on all of the shows you just mentioned. Uh, Piro, Bartiromo, and Dobbs all have this. It, it never seems to involve the host asking questions. There's a kind of disembodied voice. Uh, and uh, here's it, the person that you're hearing is somebody named Eddie Perez, which will be confusing to people here in Hartford because he used to be the mayor and he got in a, he got a lot of trouble. Not that guy. The Global Director of Technology and Development uh, and Open Standards for the OSET Institute. Uh, here's a little bit of what he says. Have you seen any evidence that Smartmatic software was used to flip votes anywhere in the U.S. in this election? I have not seen any evidence that Smartmatic software was used to uh, delete change, alter, anything related to vote tabulation. Smartmatic says its software was never used outside of LA County in 2020. Do you know whether or not that's true? That is my understanding. Uh, Smartmatic uh, functioned as the contract manufacturer 
for the Los Angeles County voting system. And that was a customized system that was effectively built to the county's order. I am not aware of them having any other direct customers relationships with election officials in the United States. So, David, this is all stuff that we know if we follow this, that all of the things that they alleged about Smartmatic weren't true and couldn't be true simply because Smartmatic wasn't working in any of the, the relevant markets uh, for all of the reasons this guy says. But this all seems a little bit to me like the legal equivalent of getting the COVID vaccine two weeks after you've developed a fever and a cough. You know, I mean, it's like they're putting this thing on <laughs> <laughs> after they've gotten in all this trouble and, and it just basically contradicts everything that those three hosts have been saying for weeks and months. I mean, if, if anything, you may be giving it too much credence. Uh, you know, it's not quite like getting the vaccine after you've already gotten disease. It's almost like getting a nicotine patch on after you've received uh, the, the, the disease, right? Because it's, uh, you know, I talked actually at some length with Betty Perez, this, this nonpartisan voting software and voting tech expert, uh, and, you know, he was interviewed by an off he was interviewed by a Fox News producer off camera who didn't explain to him why they were doing what they were doing, but asked him a series of questions that came off both in my assessment and his as though Eddie Perez was being deposed as an expert in a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Did this happen? No, it didn't. Was there any real connection with George Soros? Not really any connection. With George Soros, you'd have to be pretty deep in the weeds to even understand what they were asking, much less why. And there was no reference. This is pivotal. I think there was no reference to the fact that these claims had been ventilated on Fox News itself and that Fox News had been among the leading national national purveyors of this, uh, you know, what Joe Biden might call malarkey. So, you know, this was not uh, uh, something presented as an apology or as a correction. And in fact, after the fact, just as recently as the last few days, Fox News officials have been pointing to this as a fact check, but they didn't say what, in fact, it was checking. Uh, So this was a very weird little element that they stuck on the air late in December on the three shows of the people who became defendants because they were highly aware of what was to come. And in fact, the reason that sounded like a deposition was that lawyers worked to craft it. So Fox is in this very weird place right now. Um, On the one hand, uh, they are seeing their own constituency eaten away at by Newsmax and and One America News. Former CNN President Jonathan Klein uh, told the Daily Beast Fox News has been out crazied on the right. Uh, And but if they look in the other direction, uh, they're also they've lost some ground, at least in the January ratings. They're they're in third place behind CNN and MSNBC. And it almost looks like they need to carve out a slightly different niche from what they've had, maybe sort of like the national review of television news, maybe a little bit more responsibly to the right than the crazies on the far right. I mean, what's your what's your guess about what's going on inside Fox right now? Well, it's more than a guess and less than concrete certainty, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, take a guy that you and I have talked about over the years, the late Roger Ailes, who was, as it turned out, a serial sexual harasser and even assaulter, a, a horrible person by any definition. Uh, but he had a sense of what Fox should be, even as it changed a bit over the years. And even if it wasn't something you or I uh, could buy into as, as honorable journalism, there were journalists who worked there and felt that they could do their jobs and look themselves in the mirror, you know. Ailes is forced out after the revelation scandal in 2016 during the actually the RNC, the national convention that, you know, uh, imbues Trump with the formal mantle as his party's nominee. And it's a little bit this may be too old reference for some listeners, but it's a little bit like when Tito dies, Yugoslavia fell apart. The dictator leaves Yugoslavia fell apart right now. Fox 
is being led kind of by its viewers. And its viewers are telling it, we want not to hear about Joe Biden, and we don't want to hear that his win was legitimate, and we're pissed off when your reporters and journalists tell us that that's the case. And that's why, among other things, uh, Chris Starwalt, uh, you know, their uh, longtime political director, was shown the door because he had been appearing on the air to kind of explaining buoyantly, hey, look, this is what the facts show to be the case. This is, We called Arizona for a reason, folks. And, you know, Republican and Democratic uh, state party uh, uh, leaders and secretaries of state, excuse me, not state party leaders, but Republicans who are state uh, secretaries of state and other leading officials are telling us, along with Democrats, that these votes were counted accurately and fairly. And they didn't want to hear that. So they followed their base vo uh, viewer, which was correlated incredibly closely with Donald Trump's core voter. And that's why you saw the, a lot of small lies, like the ones we heard about smart tech that turned out, Smartmatic, that turned out to be in service of a much bigger lie, which is the idea that somehow this election was fraudulently stolen from former President Trump. And that's why you saw so much rhetoric. And I did stories on this as well uh, on shows, among them places like uh, Janine Pirro's shows, essentially exhorting people to in-person protest uh, the vote uh, being certified uh, in the Electoral College and in Congress uh, in early January that led up to the protests on 1-6 where people were being exhorted to let their congressmen uh, and let their senators know uh, that this was an illegitimate thing to uh, uh, certify. And suddenly that's where that protest went up the hill and, and became uh, not only a violent uh, mob and riot, but an actual assault on democracy itself. And I think that Fox may well be on legitimate ground to say that legally Smartmatic is claiming there's a direct correlation between its rhetoric and that assault on the Congress. And they may be able to say you can't make that incitement legally case, but there's a moral case for that. And there's a journalistic question of what the hell you do as a news organization that is supposed to acknowledge mistakes, that is supposed to apologize and explain how things went wrong and what went wrong and what it is you're talking about. And those little dollops of Eddie Perez, the canceling of Lou Dobbs, you know, we were in a cancel culture. Lou Dobbs wasn't actually fired. He's still being paid, but he's not going to show up on Fox again. And Dobbs is being sidelined. They're trying to cauterize the wound. And one thing that occurred to me the other day is, you know, there was this incredible scandal a decade ago in Britain over the tabloids, which have been hacking into people's phones. And what you saw there was, uh, you know, the Murdochs basically who control both Fox News and a lot of these other media properties. They tossed, you know, an editor over the side, said, you're done. Well, mm -hmm. that didn't do it. They closed the newspaper and then they replaced it with another a Sunday edition of their other newspaper there. And then that wasn't enough. So they got rid of their CEO. That was enough. James Murdoch leaves the company. Like they did everything they could to try to limit how high it would go in the chain of command. And that strikes me as kind of the pattern we're seeing with Lou Dobbs. Maybe one big name will do it for the public uh, criticism. And then illegally, they have to make their claim that, well, this was just opinion, so you don't have to take it seriously. Right. I mean, this is the difference between setting the record straight and trying to propitiate the gods by throwing people into volcanoes. You know, if you're doing the latter, you're not really addressing the problem. And it does strike me, David, that, you know, you and I have both worked in journalism for a really long time. And although journalism is really complicated, in a way, properly practiced, it's kind of simple. You try to find stuff out that's true, and then you do the best you can and as clearly as you can, you tell people what you found out. And it's when you veer off that path that you start to get these moments where you where people don't know 
really what they're supposed to do, and you get this kind of deer in the headlight moment. So listen, let's watch uh, or listen to uh, one of Fox's more conservative competitors, the formerly mentioned Newsmax. This is Newsmax anchor Bob Sellers, uh, and he's been talking to the My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell uh, about this whole question. And those charges are coming up again. And here's what that sounds like. They did this because I'm revealing all the evidence on Friday of all the election fraud with these machines. So I'm sorry if you think okay. it's not uh, Mike, it's real. I, I, can I ask our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? Uh, I, I don't want to have to keep going over this. Actually, we at Newsmax Mike, have not been able wait, to verify any of those allegations. Wait, that you're, you're, Mike, okay. hold on you a second. Everybody hold on a second. Mike, Mike, hold on one second. So, and eventually Sellers kind of disappears from the frame. I think he came back a day later and tried to clarify what he had done and uh, cut back also, a little bit. He yeah, came back a day later and kind of walked it back. He yeah. said, uh, you know, I was just trying to focus the conversation on cancel culture. But, uh, you know, Mike Lindell is, uh, is welcome on Newsmax anytime to talk about that. He's an important voice and he'll be heard at this network, which tells you something about the internal struggle that Newsmax has in appeasing its even more uh, Trump friendly, you know, conservative as a label doesn't even work here. It's really about Trump at the moment still. And it's Trump centric audience trying to balance that between its lawyers losing their hair, no doubt, over, you know, impending lawsuits. Right. I mean, if you're doing something other than telling the truth as you know it, that's when you hit these moments where you don't know what you're supposed to do. That's what happens to that guy at that moment. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. So the best, his best guess is to try to shut the conversation down. If that doesn't work, his second best guess is to absent himself from the set, you know, because he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. And the reason he doesn't know is because he isn't doing what journalists do anymore. You know, he, they've, done said a lot of stuff and they've allowed a lot of things to be said that weren't true and now there are these massive lawsuits you know raising their sales on the horizon i i don't know if it's going to be a lesson to them or not but you know well, if, look, yeah go ahead you know colin i mean among the slanders being done here is to the idea of opinion journalism being inherently unfair journalism like opinion journalists can be smart and good people who are professionals and take uh you know, facts that cut against their interests or their partisan uh, affinities and, and present that to the public as part of their coverage and acknowledge it. You know, you can have really good on the right and on the left journalists who are opinion journalists as well as people who try to kind of present it just straight ahead. And that's OK. I, I, I'm in favor of that. But the idea that opinion journalism is is untethered from fairness and factuality seems to me to be uh, uh, something that cable news and, and to some degree, the internet as well have uh, has fueled, and it's a I think a complete misconception of what journalism entails. Now, look, Tucker Carlson was sued, and in court last fall, and you know a judge agreed with the argument that Fox's lawyers were putting forward, which is you can't take anything that comes out of Tucker Carlson's mouth seriously. You can't literally expect it to be true. And the judge said, yeah, fair enough. And there's good reason for that being an argument, which is that you have to give broad latitude in speech for things not to be perfectly precise in order to have the robust freedom of speech that we not only expect, but are, are guaranteed in our very first amendment to the constitution. And that's not a bad thing, but it does mean that there's a leeway here for people to be bad actors, whether because they have partisan intent, whether as Smartmatic alleges, because these figures were part of a conspiracy to try to help Trump uh, delegitimize the election and perhaps even st strip it back through illegitimate means. Uh, or whether it's just people trying to appease their audiences and uh, retain ratings at a time of great uncertainty is what the heck the, the road ahead looks like. 
Right. I mean, let's give credit, if that's the right word, where credit is due. Long before, before there was Tucker Carlson, there was a guy named Rush Limbaugh. And he, you know, I mean, Limbaugh would do that stuff. I used to be on commercial radio, and for 16 years, I either was the show immediately preceding Limbaugh on this on that station or the one that followed him. And I would listen to him say stuff about, you know, the Clintons having a role in the death of Vince Foster or all of the other things that followed. And I would go to the station manager and I would go, you know, he's we've got stuff on the air right now that's just not true. I mean, like is really demonstrably not true. Should we, should we do something about that? And they would look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> right. um, so I mean, there's a way in which that degradation of the truth standard it, it's been around for a while. And now, and now you're seeing things like uh, last week, uh, Lindell takes out uh, an infomercial. James Ponowazic, the New York Times, brilliantly called it a disinfomercial because it was him laying out these spurious and baloney claims. And even OAN, which is to the right of Newsmax, which is to the right of, of, of Fox when it comes to Trump. Um, OAN had a disclaimer that was like 90 seconds long that ran before it. Rudy Giuliani in, in recent days on his radio show carried by WABC in New York, which is, I believe, itself owned by Cumulus, which inherited the ABC radio network, ran itself a disclaimer saying Rudy Giuliani, you know, the distinguished this, this, this and this. Uh, is speaking only for himself and not for the station, not for its ownership, not for its parent company. And Giuliani sounds shocked you know, that yeah. they would do this to him. He sounded like he had no warning about it. But they're trying to thread this needle of appealing to the audience. If you don't want to appeal the audience, you get rid of them. But you notice Fox didn't get rid of Maria Bartiromo, who announced at one point in, I think it was December, that she had a senior intelligence official telling her that the election was fraudulently stolen from Trump, right? Uh, you're not getting rid of Janine Pirro, who couldn't be more, you know, as though she's just channeling Trump. It's like she's a Trump, Trump sibling or something. Um, these aren't things that Fox has gotten rid of because they're not ready to get rid of his audience yet. Right. And so but, I mean, the degree but, of their, their their sincerity in this is, I think, uh, deeply in doubt. I mean, but we're in chapter one right now, you know, and, and Bartiromo, uh, people like that, they haven't been deposed yet. If that starts to happen, like if, you know, if they start getting deposed, like, well, who was that senior uh, intelligence uh, official? I mean, one of the questions that I don't think you or I are completely equipped to answer is, I mean, it's clear that Smartmatic has standing and there's a ripeness to this. The, the damage is, uh, you know, easy to point at and establish. This isn't your run of the mill libel or defamation case. This is much bigger than that. But what we don't know, I think, is how much bigger, how much more solid, you know, how big a hit could uh, could Fox News or anybody else take in this situation, anybody who circulated those lies about those two companies. But, you know, if it's as powerful as it looks, David, it really has the potential, I would think, to transform not only the way Fox does business, but maybe the way a lot of people do business. Well, in talking to a couple of smart, smart media lawyers, uh, it's, it appears as though this would be treated as a straight libel suit. And, the, you know, is Smartmatic cons what's considered a public figure? That is, if you're a super celebrity, if you're a public official, you're considered a public figure. And therefore, the courts are much more protective of wild or, or far ranging discourse about public officials to ensure robust debate about politics and major issues of national debate. Smartmatic, I want to be clear, Smartmatic says, and there's no evidence to contradict this at all, that it was only present in Los Angeles County for the entire 2020 elections. So, you know, that was a single jurisdiction in a state that was going to go for Joe Biden anyway, right? The idea that they could somehow influence what happened is crazy and monstrous. So if Smartmatic is not viewed as a public official, but considered more like a private figure, corporate individual, then it's a lot lower bar for them to get over. If, if, if you know, the, the facts are reported 
at least by these hosts, were not true and allowed to be unchecked were not true, that's a low bar, then there's a huge liability risk for Fox. You know, Smartmatic has to show what actual losses it suffered. Um, you know, if if they do this, this could be some significant damages for Fox. What I think that there's most likely to happen is if it gets far enough along in the court case where Bartiromo and Dobbs are deposed, and for that matter, senior executives are deposed, that is, their testimony is taken prior to the actual public trial uh, commencing, uh, they will settle. And they will settle for a ton of money. And why do I think that? I think that because that's the pattern they followed in the Seth Rich case. It was a, a you know a murdered uh, staffer, young staffer for the Democratic National Committee, who soon after rumors and conspiracy theories strung out that he was the one who leaked thousands of emails from the DNC and the Clinton campaign to WikiLeaks. In fact, you know, pretty much uniform uh, conclusions of the intelligence community and special counsel Robert Mueller showed that it was the Russians who were doing this, but it was, it was labeled as him and Fox in May of 2017 blamed this young man, this dead young man. Ultimately they end up paying in the tens of millions of dollars to his parents uh, for, for the, the story that they had to retract, but never apologized for. And similarly never explained why it got wrong and what went wrong. Um, and they did that right before Sean Hannity and others had to be deposed for that case. Right. I mean, another obvious analogy, we're going to have to wrap here, but another obviously analogy is the uh, uh, ABC pink slime meat processing case. And not coincidentally, Smartmatic has hired Eric Connolly, who was the lead lawyer uh, in that particular case. Uh, and uh, both cases where sort of a, a company's reputation is impugned by journalists. Uh, so anyway, well, well, to be continued, David Fulkenflick, always great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks, man. All right. So we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl commercials. I was a little less riveted by the Super Bowl than I sometimes am. And therefore by the commercials as well. But there's still things to say about them. All right. So uh, for today's show and also as we head into a challenging week where sometimes we're going to be preempted and we're going to, I think, going to be trying to put together um, a version of our stealth brand. Uh, pardon me. Another damn impeachment show. Uh, we I am reliant on my amazing team uh, today in particular. I want to thank Kat Pastor. She's the technical producer there in the studio, uh, making sure everything happens the way we hope it will happen. Uh, and uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show and the producer of this particular episode. And yeah, uh, as the week goes along, here we're going to try to figure this out i mean they're not being very helpful in terms of like barely being able to tell us on monday what they're going to do on tuesday but i think by the end of the week we will have figured out how to do uh, an episode of pardon me if we do nothing else all week which is starting to worry me that maybe that'll happen anyway here we go uh because we want to talk about the super bowl commercials we used to back in the old days do entire shows where we would just parse and conduct exegesis on uh, all these commercials as though they were you know miniature james joyce novels we no longer do that, but uh, I think it is worth talking uh, to Melinda Fuquade, uh, who wrote a very interesting piece. It was the one that I saw that I thought, okay, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, she's a fellow for The Goods by Vox, uh, covering culture and entertainment. She wrote a piece about the tone uh, of this year's Super Bowl ads, because this year is not like other years. We have a pandemic. We have lots of other bad things going on. We're kind of fragmented. So, uh, Melinda, first of all, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much. 
So, in general, um, obviously, Super Bowl commercials fall into multiple categories. Uh, some of them try to grab you a l- little bit with humor. Uh, some of them try to dazzle you with the number of celebrities they can recruit for a fairly slender purpose. Uh, so, you know, you might see a, like a, a Miracle Grow or whatever commercial that was that has John Travolta and Martha Stewart and a whole bunch of other uh, celebrities there just being there for the purpose of being there, as far as I can tell. And then there are the ones that kind of try to get to our spirit. Uh, So, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about the balance among those things. It would seem like this would be a year where you would want to somehow or other acknowledge the sadness and and the almost eerie differences that exist right now. How did uh, the advertising world do with that challenge? Yeah, so I would say that surprisingly, there were not that many commercials that... um, even covered or mentioned things like the pandemic and the political unrest this year. Um, the Miracle Pro commercial that you mentioned did touch on it a little bit by implying that, um, you know, consumers should buy Miracle Grow to help their gardens and their backyards because the backyard space has had a very big year, but they didn't say, you know, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um but there were a few commercials that did stand out and acknowledge the unrest in particular, um, a commercial from Jeep um, with Bruce Springsteen. And actually um, let's, 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 like the divide. let's hear a little bit of that. This is the uh, Bruce Springsteen commercial she's talking about. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. It's what connects us. And we need that connection. We need the middle. So um, this is significant for a number of reasons, starting with the fact that Springsteen does not do commercials until yesterday. Uh, and, and it's kind of an unusual commercial. I don't even think we saw a new Jeep in that commercial. The, the Jeep he was in, it looked to me like kind of a vintage, maybe even repainted uh, old Jeep. So what's going on there? Yeah, it felt like one of those things that really just tries to capture the American spirit and promote unity. Um and I um, and hope that consumers also keep that in mind when like buying cars or looking at Jeep and kind of just um, equating that message of unit of political unity with Jeep and with America. Um, while in other commercials, they just kind of stepped over that. So I thought that was very interesting, but also a little unsurprising for a car commercial. So there's another commercial that you, uh, I think, um, emphasized, and we're not going to play it because, first of all, I'm running out of time, but also because it's pretty visual. I mean, basically, this is an Anheuser-Busch ad. They're very good uh, at tweaking our our emotions and and getting uh, our soft, creamy centers uh, activated about their product. We know that from past commercials with dogs and horses and stuff like that. This is sort of a lot of people agreeing to meet for a beer under unusual circumstances, including at least on one occasion, an actual funeral. Uh, And I see something about this, uh, Melinda. Yeah. In that commercial, there's um, various different groups, couples, friends, acquaintances, strangers, and they all kind of um, decide to get a beer together, whether after like a sad event, like a funeral, or even um, 
people being fired from their companies. Um, there was one scene where two coworkers got together or de- and decided to get a beer after being fired. Um, restaurant workers, performers, and things like that. And I think it really spoke to the division. Um, I'm sorry. It really spoke to the isolation that people are feeling right now. Um, it definitely got me a little emotional um, in that you can't just go grab a beer with whoever or strangers whenever you want now, but that's something that we really want to get back to. And that commercial kind of, even though that was not too far, uh, that was not too long ago that we were able to just do that. It felt almost nostalgic that you could just grab a beer um, and go to a restaurant and chat with someone you don't really know or catch up with an old friend. Um, so even though that commercial didn't directly mention the pandemic and um, the hardships of this past year, it definitely um, touched upon those emotions. You know, it certainly has death and unemployment. I think we know what they're talking about. Melinda Fuquade, we're going to have to stop there. It's a terrific piece. We encourage people to check it out. On the Goods by Vox, uh, it's her piece uh, on the Super Bowl ads, and a lot of those ads are embedded there for you to watch. Thanks to all of you who listened. Uh, we will be covering impeachment somehow. Uh, we faced this challenge in the past. We know how to surmount it. But thank you so much for listening today.